This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 307, entitled, Five Things Your Pastor Is Not Telling You About Jesus' Birth. Yes, we are in the Christmas time, and people are thinking about the birth of Jesus in one manner or another, and so I thought, why not take the opportunity to talk about Matthew and Luke's genealogies and birth narratives? Now, I'm sure that I'm not the only one who has either attended a church Christmas play where the birth of Jesus is acted out by little children or observed some sort of depiction of the nativity scene and noticed that there are a few inconsistencies between these retellings and what we actually read in the Bible in Matthew and Luke's gospel. No, I'm not talking about the number of wise men who visited Jesus. We all know that there were three gifts, and the text doesn't say that there were three actual wise men, despite the fact that my children's Bible that I read to my three-year-old son has three wise men riding on three camels, and they give three gifts, but the text does not say that there were three numerical wise men in Matthew. I'm also not going to be talking about the well-known translation of the Greek noun katalima, which refers to a guest room in all actuality, but certainly does not refer to an inn or some sort of motel that was full. I'm talking about the Christological facts within these birth narratives that are clearly evidenced by the text, but many pastors who try to take the opportunity during Advent to teach on the incarnation of the pre-existing Son of God in heaven who becomes a little child, these particular truths often get ignored and sidestepped. So this week's episode, we'll look at five, count them, five things that pastors leave out of their Advent sermons. Five things that pastors are not telling their congregations about the birth of Jesus. And as the purpose of this podcast states, I hope that these five truths that are regularly ignored become discussion points when you decide to talk about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus during this Christmas season, whether you observe Christmas or not. Who is the newborn son, Jesus, according to Matthew and Luke? And is the virgin birth consistent with Christologies that believe in the literal preexistence of Jesus? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first truth that gets ignored by pastors during the Advent season is that Jesus descended from the patriarch David. So Matthew's gospel is going to make this point 
in his genealogy, starting in chapter 1. But you can also see it in Luke's genealogy, which goes in reverse order in Luke chapter 3. There's really no point in reading two genealogies, so we'll just start with Matthew. Because as Matthew begins in Matthew 1, verse 1, it indicates the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very first sentence you read when you flip to your New Testament indicates that there is a genealogy which tells us the list of persons from whom Jesus originated. It also gives two very important titles to Jesus, one being the son of David and the other being the son of Abraham. Jesus being a descendant of Abraham means he is obviously an Israelite. He's obviously going to be a Jew as well, but it also indicates that Jesus is the figure who is going to bring to fulfillment and climax all of the Abrahamic promises. And the promises of Abraham were made to his lineal descendants. And Jesus, of course, is one of those. So Matthew goes on and he says that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. And it goes on and on and on for many verses. You get down to verse 16, and you get down to Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, out of whom Jesus was born. That's what it says in the Greek. Jesus came out of Mary, not through Mary, out of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, the Christ. And then we can see that all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So we take this perfect number 7, give a multiple of it, 14, and we can see that there is this sense of Jesus being born according to the divine plan. But the plan begins with Abraham, and it indicates his biological descendants, his lineal descendants. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, we have Judah, we have Perez. And so it just goes on and on and on, and it indicates that Jesus descended from the patriarch David. That means Jesus is younger than Abraham by hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus did not pre-exist Abraham, at least not in any meaningful, conscious, and literal way. No sons are older than their ancestors. That much is clear. That's the definition of a son and an ancestor. A son, by definition, is younger than and has descended from his ancestor. So, if Jesus is, according to the plain reading of Matthew 1.1, the son of Abraham, then Jesus is descended from that particular patriarch, and that would make Jesus a human being, a man, a member of the human race who finds his origins in Abraham, the famous patriarch. That is inconsistent with any understanding of conscious, literal preexistence. All sons, by definition, are younger than their ancestors. The second truth that your pastor is not telling you during this time of Advent is that Jesus had a Genesis. 
In other words, Jesus had a beginning. So the Greek noun genesis, it's pronounced in modern Greek as genesis, means beginning. And we can see that Matthew uses the Greek noun genesis to describe the birth of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus. Did Jesus Christ have a beginning or was he always in existence? Well, Matthew says that Jesus did have a beginning. Jesus had a genesis. And we can see that in Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. And in Greek, it indicates that the genesis of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 1, 18 through 20. So we have a section after moving away from the genealogy, and now we're in the birth narratives. It indicates that Jesus had a beginning. He had a genesis. The actual Greek word genesis is used there in Matthew 1.18. It's translated as birth, but you could just translate it as genesis. Now the genesis of Jesus was as follows. How did it happen? Mary was found to be with child. It wasn't Joseph's, and he wanted to send her away without bringing shame upon himself or on Mary, but when he considered this, a heavenly angel appeared in a dream to him and commanded him to take Mary as his wife because the child who has been begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the creative extension of God. Matthew even calls the Spirit the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit created Jesus in Mary. And the verb used here for creation is the verb to beget, that which has been begotten in her, which is the same verb that's been used nearly 40 times earlier in Matthew 1, 1 through 17 to indicate that Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, etc., etc., etc. So if Abraham brought Isaac into existence and Isaac brought Jacob into existence through the act of begetting. And Matthew uses that very same verb to describe the coming into existence of Jesus. Then Jesus did not literally pre-exist his begetting because we all know what it means for a child to be begotten. It means a child is born and brought into existence. Now Luke tells us in Luke 135, a similar story. The angel is actually talking to Mary and the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That's Luke 1.35. And in the Greek, it's a little more specific. It's not just the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. It's the Holy One begotten shall be called the Son of God because of the activity, the creative activity of the power of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon Mary and creating and bringing into existence through the creative power of the Most High's Spirit, 
and it would create Jesus, making him the Son of God. So, of course, the second truth that your pastor is not telling you is that Matthew and Luke both, independent of one another, describe Jesus as having a genesis. Jesus had a beginning. Jesus was brought into existence due to the creative power of God's Holy Spirit. The third truth that your pastor is not telling you about is that Jesus is distinguished from the Lord God. Jesus is distinguished from the Most High God. So we just got done reading Luke 135, but a few verses earlier, we have some of the most important theological points that are said in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus, who is not yet born yet. He is someone who is going to be born. So Gabriel tells Mary in Luke 132 that he, Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's Luke 1, verses 32 through 33. Now notice we have some designations here for God. Everyone understands that God is the Most High. Everyone understands that God is the Lord God. So notice we have two different ways that God is being described here. But is Jesus described as the Most High God? No. The authoritative angel from heaven, the heavenly messenger, indicates that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Not that he is the Most High. He is clearly distinguished from the Most High, being the Son of the Most High. And remember, if Jesus is the Son of God, then God, in that phrase, by definition, has to be the Father. If Jesus is the Son of God, then that God, in the phrase Son of God, must be the Father. So the Most High, the Most High One, notice the Most High One, not the Most High Three, the Most High One is the Father, and Jesus is distinguished from the Most High, being the Son. And then we also see that the Lord God, another designation for God the Father, the Lord God will give him, will give Jesus, the throne of his ancestor David. So is Jesus the Lord God? No. Jesus is the person who receives from the Lord God the throne of his ancestor David. That's interesting. We can also see in this passage, by the way, that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Son of David. That's a very interesting point. So, is Jesus the Lord God who has left heaven to come down and become an infant baby? Is Jesus the Most High God who gave up being God in order to be a crying child? And Luke would tell us that the answer is no. Jesus is not the Lord God. Jesus is not the Most High God. Jesus clearly distinguished from the Lord God. He is the Son of the Most High God. He is the person who receives from someone other than himself, namely the Lord God, the throne of David. So that much is very clear. A sixth grader can read that and understand what's going on. Luke does not collapse the Son with the Most High God. He does not collapse Jesus with the Lord God and make them a single being. The fourth truth that your pastor is not telling you about Jesus' birth is that Jesus descended from the dynasty of Davidic kings. We already saw this in Matthew 1.1 where we pointed out that Jesus bears the title 
of the son of Abraham, but he also bears the title, the son of David. And this recalls all the promises in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, particularly verses 12 through 16. Arguably, in my opinion, 2 Samuel 7 is the most important and influential passage in all of the Old Testament. It had more influence on New Testament understandings of Jesus and messianic thought than any other passage, with the arguable competitor being Psalm 110, verse 1. But 2 Samuel 7 is certainly there in the running for the most influential passage. But Jesus is the son of David, meaning he is the lineal descendant of David, the person who was promised a dynasty of kings that were to come forth from David's own body, who were to occupy the throne that was geographically located in Jerusalem and was to possess and to rule over a literal kingdom without end. And we can see that in the opening line in Matthew 1.1. We can also see that like being a descendant of the patriarch Abraham, Jesus, according to Matthew, is a descendant of King David. So we can see that if you skip to verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, we see that Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. The passage goes on, and it indicates all of the descendants of Solomon. So that was Matthew 1.6. And of course, we saw in Luke 1.32 that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his ancestor David. Both Matthew and Luke indicate that Jesus is a biological lineal descendant of David the king. And this means that Jesus is going to be the one that's going to rule the world. He's going to rule in the consummated kingdom of God by ruling on the throne of David, which is going to be geographically located in Jerusalem. Yes, it's true. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God right now. Yes, it's true. That seat upon which Jesus is sitting is a throne. But that throne is not the throne of David. The throne of David, in every occurrence in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, is a throne in Jerusalem, geographically located there, that is to be occupied by the Davidic king. Now, the Davidic covenant has surely been temporarily suspended, and it's going to be fulfilled when Jesus physically returns to consummate the kingdom of God on the earth. But in order for Jesus to qualify for this role, in order for him to qualify for the role as the Jewish Messiah, he must be the biological lineal descendant of David. He has to be that. If Jesus was an angel from heaven, he would be a very important person, but he wouldn't be the Jewish Messiah because the Jewish Messiah had to be the son of David. And the son of David is just understood within the gospel accounts frequently in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also in John, and to a lesser extent. The son of David is a title that's understood to mean the promised Jewish Messiah. And you can't be a descendant of David if you pre-exist David, at least in a literal sense. Remember, all sons are younger than their ancestors. Matthew and Luke portrayed Jesus as the son of David. So Jesus is younger than David, although being the Messiah, he is more important than David. So that's the fourth truth that your pastor is not telling you about, but it's pretty easy for you to see by reading the New Testament for yourself. And the fifth and final thing 
that is being left out of Advent sermons is the fact that Jesus' sonship is likened unto Adam's sonship. Yes, we're going all the way back to Adam. We're going beyond and even farther back in history than simply Abraham. We're going to go to Adam, whose name means humanity in Hebrew. So notice how Luke is going to frame Jesus as a son of God who is like Adam. And we'll talk about why that is important. So we already read in Luke 135 that because of the miracle of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, and of course that's further defined as the power of the Most High overshadowing her, it is because of that reason that the Holy Begotten Child will be called the Son of God. Because of the miracle activity of the Holy Spirit from the Most High, God's powerful Holy Spirit, that the child that is brought into existence is called the Son of God. The sense there is that God, namely the Father, is extending his creative power through his Spirit to bring the Son of God into existence, to create the Son of God. That would make, of course, the Father, the actual Father of Jesus. No surprise there. All readers of the New Testament acknowledge that. For Jesus to be called the Son of God, at least here in Luke 135, the sense is that he actually is the Son of that one God. We can also see a similar way in which this title is used in Luke's genealogy, which you have to read at the end of Luke chapter 3, after Luke has already described the fact that Jesus has been baptized. The baptism, of course, indicates and proves that Jesus is the Messiah with a sort of public anointing ceremony for his role as the Jewish king. He is anointed for that particular role. So then it gives a genealogy and it starts with Jesus and it continues to work backwards and it goes backwards all the way past David, all the way past Abraham, and then you get all the way to Adam in Luke 3 verse 38 and it talks about the son of Adam, who himself was the son of God. It's interesting. Luke says that Adam is the son of God, and he says that Jesus is the son of God. Now, in what sense, we might ask, is Adam the son of God? Well, Adam is the son of God because God is the one who created Adam. And God, of course, brought Adam into existence. Now, notice that Adam is a human being. To be the son of God doesn't mean that the descendant of God himself must be divine or must be God. Adam is actually a human being. He's not half God, half man, or 100% God or 100% man. To be the son of God doesn't mean that you are divine in the way that God is. Adam himself, his very name, means that he's a man. He's a human being. So Adam was son of God in the way that would indicate that God was his actual father, even though Adam wasn't begotten at least in the sense of a birth begetting. Jesus was. He actually was born out of his mother. But Jesus' father was not Joseph. Jesus' father was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so by Luke portraying Jesus as the Son of God through the creative activity of God's Spirit, and then going on a few chapters later and also describing Adam as the Son of God. Luke is trying to get the readers to understand that Jesus is a Son of God in the way that Adam is, at least in this particular passage. 
This would mean that God is the father of Jesus. God is the creator of Jesus in the same way that God created Adam. But again, if Adam is a human being and he's the son of God, and that title son of God is also being described of Jesus, Jesus also would be a human being who is brought into existence by God, the father of Jesus. So there you have it. Five things your pastor is not telling you about Jesus' birth. And so my conclusion is that Matthew and Luke's genealogies, birth narratives, and Advent passages are inconsistent with any Trinitarian view of Jesus, any modalist view of Jesus, an Arian view of Jesus, or any theology that attributes literal preexistence to Jesus. Why is this the case? Answer, Jesus is 100% human. He is 100% a human being. Full stop. Not 100% human being and also 100% God. Jesus is 100% a human being, and he draws his lineage, according to Matthew and Luke, from famous human beings like David and Abraham. But the difference between Jesus and every other human being that's living right now is that God himself, that is Yahweh, is Jesus' actual father. Jesus can say that Yahweh, or God, is his father in a way that no one else can actually say, because God is actually the father of Jesus. And I would argue, respectfully, that Christmas time nativity scenes would be a lot more God-honoring if they actually talked about these five important truths rather than obscuring or hiding them from the public because the public deserves to know the truth. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore whether the Son of Man in First Enoch is the very same figure that the New Testament Gospels illustrate as the Son of Man, namely Jesus. Is the Son of Man in the Gospels the same Son of Man in First Enoch, a Jewish work? Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. This helps others to find the podcast by giving us an honest review online and by taking your favorite episodes and sharing them with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.